One in two New Zealanders experience mental illness in their lifetime. One in five every year. Although with COVID-19, that number is currently elevated and doesn't really take into the account those of us that may not have mental illness, but might not also be flourishing. As a clinical psychologist, I have been trained to formulate, which means that I'm trained to meet an individual and understand their current situation, analyse what's led to their current state of well-being, what keeps the not good symptoms and behaviours going, learn and understand their history, their risk and protective factors, and then to use research and evidence-based practice to help treat that individual, be it through psychotherapeutic interventions, referrals to a psychiatrist for medication, or working on behavioural shifts. In all my training, the interaction between what you eat and your mental health was not really ever discussed. Whilst this link or correlation may seem obvious to the general population, food was perhaps confined to the physical health camp. In the last 10 years, however, that relationship between nutritional intake, gut health and our mental health has intrigued me, but I'd admit to you all my knowledge on the topic is limited at best. Lucky for New Zealand, we have a worldwide expert on the topic living and working on our shores and I've invited her along to share her knowledge with us all. I'm Jackie McGuire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? It means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimise personal well-being, work and relationships. Put simply, Mindbrew has been created to help people live the good life. In a moment, you'll hear the voice of Professor Julia Rutledge. Julia is a Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Canterbury. She was named in the top 100 most influential women in New Zealand in 2018, and her 2014 TEDx talk has been viewed over 1.29 million times. Her interests are centred on the role of nutrition in the expression and treatment of mental illness, from ADHD to depression to stress, especially stress following natural disasters. She leads the Mental Health and Nutrition Lab at the University of Canterbury, where their aim is to find nutritional interventions that are effective in treating psychiatric or psychological illnesses. The lab also amazingly runs a free, massive, open online course, which they call a MOOC, which is open to the general public, like for you and me. It should also be noted that Julia's labs are not connected to the manufacturers of any products, meaning they have no biased interest when conducting their research. All they're really interested in is finding real treatments that work for real people like you and I. Finally, Julia has just released a book called The Better Brain, which describes how nutrition will help you overcome anxiety, depression, ADHD, and stress. And as you'll hear throughout this podcast, this book seems to be absolutely jam-packed, full of science, case studies, recipes, and things that you can do in your daily life to help you improve your mental well-being through what you put in your mouth.
Julia, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's always lovely to have other New Zealand clinical psychologists on the podcast. Well, I am thrilled that there's another clinical psychologist out there who is interested in the role of diet and nutrition on mental health. There are others out there, but they're few and far between, and it'd be wonderful if we can make that grow. Well, I'm going to be really honest with you and our listeners that I'm interested, but my knowledge is pretty small, Julia. So I'm going to come at this. Normally, I ask questions like a naive inquirer, but I pretty much know the answer when I ask them in this podcast. I'm going to be asking questions and I don't know the answer. So that's going to be the the difference between this and perhaps other ones. We had a conversation last week where you said, Jackie, your listeners know that I'm not a nutritionist, don't they? And I think that's a really good place to start. You're a clinical psychologist like me, but you have an interest and you specialize in micronutrients. So what is the difference between you and a nutritionist and what would people hear when you speak that's different from what a nutritionist would talk on? The term that's been coined in the field at the moment is a nutritional psychologist or nutritional psychiatrist, but that's not me, but or nutritional psychiatry, nutritional psychology. That's a term that's been sort of thrown around over the last 10 years for people who are working in this interface between nutrition and mental health. So I guess the first thing is that people who are working in this space are kind of new and novel, and we are trying to figure out where do we fit relative to psychology or relative to a nutritionist. So for me, the way I think of nutrition and mental health is that I think about it on very broad strokes. So I'm thinking about the role of nutrients broadly together. So vitamins and minerals is the work that I've been involved in the last 10 years in a capsule form. We've been looking at it not as a single, any single special vitamin or mineral like magnesium or zinc or vitamin C. We are giving the breadth of nutrients that our brain requires and see whether or not that plays a role in mental health. But that's led me to be a lot more conversant on the topic of diet in general, but again, from a very broad perspective, which is that given that our research, and I know we'll delve into this more, but given our research generally is finding that vitamins and minerals are helpful for some people who are struggling with a psychological problem, then that leads you to go, okay, well then we need to make sure that we eat nutrient-dense food, foods that have these vitamins and minerals in them. And so that's what leads me to a very broad stroke approach to what I have to say about diet and nutrition. And that is that we need to be eating foods that are high in these nutrients, and then avoid or lessen our intake of foods that are low in those nutrients. I hope I said that right. So a nutritionist or a dietitian, and I know those are they see themselves as being quite different, but they might delve more into some specifics, like specific types of diets or certain types of foods that you may be allergic to that you need to avoid doing elimination diets to find out what those culprits are, perhaps making sure that you're getting a full array of different macronutrients for your specific physical health issue. So that's sort of how I see it. what I do is different from what a specialized nutritionist or dietitian might do. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And so just to be really clear, when we look at micronutrients, we're looking at vitamins, we're looking at minerals, we're looking at fatty acids. 
etc. Yep. The essential fatty acids. Yes. Yeah. That's what my research has been focused on. But then that's, of course, led me to get engaged in the research that's been done on dietary patterns. And I'm incredibly familiar with that entire body of research as a consequence of the work that I do. And I go to international conferences on nutritional psychiatry. Not in the last 12 months, eh, Julia? online international conferences. (laughs) This is true. But I've also been, I go to things like AMA, which is the Australasian, I don't know, Integrative Medicine Association probably, or there's other Australia, New Zealand integrative health conferences that I've been attending online. So there are, yeah, there are some, some of those kinds of conferences that are going on. And again, a difference probably being that your research is through a lens of very much looking at mental health, whereas a dietitian may look at health holistically. Absolutely. And so I often get asked about, you know, weight loss and gain and diabetes or obesity. And I stay very much within that mental health arena. I don't step out of that area of specialty. So Julia and I, you and I have got the same background, formal base training as clinical psychologists. We're trained to meet people, assess what's going on for them, formulate their backgrounds, help them with pathways forward from a very kind of traditional, classic mental health perspective. How the heck did you then transition into looking at this relationship between food, diet, nutrient and mental health? Sure. I mean, it's a long answer. So essentially, yes, you're right. I had a very formal, my training was in what you just described. And when it comes to nutrition, in fact, it wasn't really talked about at all. And in fact, at the time when I went through my training in the 1990s, nutrition was viewed as irrelevant to the brain. And so now that I think about it, I think, gosh, that's a ridiculous statement people were making back then. And they still do make those statements. So, you know, let's not miss that elephant in the room. Is that me too? The only time first. Food was mentioned was during when you learned about eating disorders. It's the only time food was ever mentioned in my training. Exactly. And so we were trained not to think about how to feed the brain. It was a very foreign idea for me. And again, against what I had learned when I went through my formal training. So, but what happened to me was unusual. And that is that when I was doing my PhD, there were some families in Southern Alberta, Canada. I did my PhD at the University of Calgary. And they approached my supervisor, Bonnie Kaplan, who I wrote the book with that we'll talk about, and said, we think we found a treatment for serious mental health issues like bipolar, psychosis, major depression, those types of things that we, you know, you and I will have been taught can only be treated with medications and or psychotherapy. So Bonnie at first tried to push that idea, you know, them away and, you know, that snake oil. And I'm tired of people who are coming to me with flaky ideas, but she was convinced to study it because a colleague of hers at the University of Lethbridge, a very well-known neuroscientist, Brian Kolb, had collected a little bit of data from these families and had said, you know, you really should pay attention. These people who are taking these micronutrients are actually doing quite well. So Bonnie ran a a very small clinical trial around the time when I was just finishing my PhD, doing my postdoc in Toronto. I heard about these results of putting people on micronutrients who had bipolar disorder and them doing well with a lower dose of their medication alongside nutrients. And so as a scientist, and at that point, I had just taken on a job here at the University of Canterbury as a academic and the Department of Psychology at the time. I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. And 
was somewhat intrigued, but then moved, you know, continued to do other research I was doing on ADHD and their cognitive functioning and psychosocial functioning and that traditional thinking of a type of research that you would do as a psychologist in an academic center. But she kept throwing data at me. And that Bonnie's very good at that, is to continue to at least think about it. And so I had two children. And after they got to a stage where I could actually start to think again, I... <laughs> I'm not yet in this stage. <laughs> but you can probably appreciate that you're... Tre- I, I very much called it treading water at best in those early years. Then I, I thought, well you know what, at this point, I'm less naive. I'm recognizing that many people aren't getting better with our current treatments. I'm recognizing they have limitations. Just, you know, even though for some people, medications are a lifesaver for others and many others. And I think those numbers are things that we don't really talk about enough is that there are many people who take these medications and they're not doing well. And so my research was showing that even when kids with ADHD were getting the best treatment available, you know, medications and or, you know, they might have been getting behavioral treatments, not generally in New Zealand, but, you know, getting the frontline forms of treatment and specifically the medications, they still weren't doing as well as kids who didn't have ADHD. You know, when you just looked at that and you thought, well, is that good enough? If we're pumping our kids with drugs, we want them to be doing well, don't we? If we're putting external substances on them. Well, exactly. I mean, if we thought about this from the perspective of a physical illness, that if somebody had a broken leg and they went to the doctor and the leg was pretty much still broken six months later, or, you know, maybe a little bit better and maybe you could walk on it, but you still experienced enormous amount of pain and it didn't heal, we would probably be going, we need to be actively looking at how do we better manage a broken leg. Mm. But when it comes to mental health, there's such a stigma associated with it that we don't talk, people don't talk about the fact that they haven't done well with these treatments often, or that they think that's as good as it's going to get. I think that might even be their mindset, or I'm so broken, even the medications don't work for me. Mm. So I thought, well, I'm a scientist, even though this idea that nutrition might be able to treat really serious conditions, even though it contravened our current way of thinking, academics are the critic and conscience of society. We have to be challenging the current worldview. We need to be doing research that either proves that nutrition is irrelevant to the brain, and that would be a good thing to know. And then we can, you know, put squash that once and for all that don't take supplements because they're not going to do anything for you. Or we show that there's a role for them. They have a place. You know, it's not going to be the cure of anything in terms of everyone getting better, but it may well have a place and have an enormous effect on some people's lives in which case we all need to know that. So I embarked on it very naively to just study the idea that minerals and vitamins were relevant. Dietitians, nutritionists, psychiatrists weren't interested in the question. So were you a lone ranger here, Julia, for a while? Very alone, very alone, absolutely alone. 2008, 2009, no one else was doing this. I had a lot of red tape, a lot of opposition, surprisingly, because mm. I was like, well, doesn't any well, people want to know? It's like, it was very hard to get through ethics. It was very hard to get grants. It was just very hard to publish. Everything was an uphill battle. So I imagined you would have to buddy up with someone though, right? Like we're not taught about vitamins and minerals. Did you have someone from that field that supported you? Not nationally. 
Right. Uh, internationally, there were people who were interested in this, but not not at a national level, not right. in New Zealand. At best, I could get some physicians who would agree to be on the clinical trial to monitor patients to make sure that we weren't harming them. Right. But even then, I mean, and the physicians I work with now are fantastic. And so 2021, I can say I do have people in New Zealand who are kind of are starting to go, oh yeah, this is of interest. I have a lab where I have graduate students who are absolutely passionate about it. But back then, I wouldn't let a graduate student touch this. This was not something that you could let a student do. There was too much controversy. You know, I was being attacked, getting emails that were were really uh, unfair and sometimes quite awful. I had a lot of things happen over the years that meant that I could not let a students get involved in this kind of work. Lonely work then, huh? It was a very lonely work, but what kept me going was that, you know, my first dabble in this was that I had this young man who had obsessive compulsive disorder who I had been treating with CBT and the best of the best. And this family didn't want medications. They were very clear, but I, you know, we, there was only so far we could go. And I, as a good clinical psychologist would do, you'd be like, well, how else can I formulate this? And how else can I think about this? What else can I do? He was very willing to try different things, but it just, he continued to be really struggling with the symptoms, certainly a bit better than he was, but still present. So then, you know, I'd heard about some cases in Canada where they treated some kids with OCD. And I thought, let's just suggest this to this family. And they were completely on board. I was incredibly clear about it, was that there is no research that I'm aware of other than these case studies that have been published. I have no idea if it's going to help you, but I'm happy to monitor you if you wanted to go down this route. The family decided to go for it. And within two weeks, I heard from them that the obsessions and compulsions were virtually gone. Two weeks. Yeah. Wow. I know. Exactly. So yes, I know. So that's the kind of thing that you pay attention to. You've been trying, trying, working with someone. You think there's no way this could be a placebo effect. I've worked with this young man for so long. I mean, it could be, it's possible. But so what we did was we had him go on and off, on and off the nutrients. And he went off of them after eight. So he was on them for eight weeks. He did really well. There was still some stuff there. So I don't want to say it's absolutely was completely gone. Not completely, but really manageable, like things that he was just able to, you know, when they would come, the thoughts would come, he could just let them go. It was really stunning to see this. So he ended up going off of them so that we could do kind of a traditional ABAB and the obsessions and convulsions returned went back on and they reduced again. So that got me intrigued. I thought this is worth looking into looking into what have I got to lose? And so then I did an open label meeting that we just exposed about 15 adults to the nutrients. And again, I'd have people coming in going, I've never felt this good. So hearing those stories of people doing really well, again, not everyone, but I, you know, I want to emphasize that. But when we saw people changing, the change was dramatic. It was really life-changing for these people. So I kept going and that's what kept me going was the stories. And then when I had my, I've had a TEDx talk that I did in 2014, it's had 1.7 million views and it has attracted a lot of attention, some good, some bad. That's its own story in itself. But what that has done is that it's meant that I've had thousands and thousands of emails from people all over the world thanking me for this work. Yeah, And also, again, though, there's two sides to this. There's the side of 
uh, people telling me either that they changed their diet and they feel great, or they've tried the nutrients that we've been studying and they feel really good. But I also hear the other side more and more, which is that I'll get these emails from people. I'll say, you know, my my husband, my daughter, my son, my wife, my grandmother, my aunt, my uncle, whatever, has been struggling with major depression for years. They've been on, you know, 10 or so different medications. They're currently on three or four. They can't sleep. They're still down. We've tried everything that the doctor has told us to do. I want to know more about these Mm. nutrients. So I feel like I'm the voice for the vulnerable as well, that I'm that voice for people who have really struggled and conventional treatment isn't helping them. Mm. And so we've really got to also pay attention to that because I often, I get criticized for for being critical of how medications hasn't helped everybody. And I say, well, that's what the data show us. Mm. I'm just saying what's already out there. I'm not hearing you say that medication has no place because I think for some people it absolutely does and it does wonders and whether that's because they've got endogenous mental illness or they've got the right match or for for some people it's very worthwhile. But what you're saying and what we know is that that's not broad brushstroke, that just because you go and see the GP you're going to get something that works. Exactly, exactly. And even psychotherapy, uh, we know that not everyone gets better. So it's, it seems to everybody's advantage to have more tools in the toolbox. Yeah. And so for psychologists, I think one tool that they could really uh, run with and have probably a huge difference for their patients and their clients is to start talking about diet just mm. in such a broad brush, simple way. And the reason I say that is because I don't think they're going to go wrong in talking about it and discovering that probably there are things that their patients are eating that are probably not really that great for their mental health and are are probably getting in the way. And it may even be getting in the way of recovery with psychotherapy. So just knowing the data, knowing that 69% of foods that are sold in a supermarket are ultra processed food Mm. should make us all stop and go, okay, is that feeding my brain adequately to cope with the daily stressors that are coming at me left, right, and center? That's the first thing. Second is the data, international data that shows that 50% of the caloric intake of North Americans anyway, but I suspect you'd see the same thing in New Zealand, is from ultra-processed food. And that less than 20% of people are meeting the minimal daily intake of their fruit and vegetables. So again, this is not a low SES issue. This is not about just a certain decile. This is clearly a large percentage of our population are eating too much crap and not enough of the good stuff. Knowing those stats... It's not rocket science to say, let's see about what are you currently eating? Very broad, quite easy questions. Let's find out a little bit more of your diet. How many fruit and, you know, servings of fruit and vegetables are you eating today? You know, what are your typical foods that you're eating? Is it takeaway? How much fish do you eat? How much nuts and seeds and legumes and black beans and quinoa or chickpeas or, you know, just how much of those types of foods are you eating knowing that those are nutrient dense? How much of foods that you have lots and lots of numbers on the labels are you eating? So I'd actually see them not as ultra-processed versus whole foods. It's ultra-processed, processed, and whole foods. And processed is things like, you know, your milk is processed. It's pasteurized. 
your frozen peas are processed. Anything that's canned is processed. It's been changed from what its original form is. That's not necessarily bad. So we need to stop calling it processed food as being what we don't want to eat. It's ultra processed food that we don't want to eat. And that's that food that's been completely devoid of nutrients. If you look at how much nutrients are in there in terms of those micronutrients that we know are so essential for our brain health, we know that they're involved in making neurotransmitters like your dopamine and your serotonin, your adrenaline, you need those vitamins and minerals on every step of the chemical reactions to make those those neurotransmitters. We need them for helping regulate our DNA. We need them for the energy cells, for our mitochondria, which is the powerhouses of our cells to make energy. So we need these nutrients for everything that your body does. And so if you're eating a diet mainly consists of foods that are devoid of these essential nutrients, then no wonder you feel like crap. No wonder you have anxiety. It's not rocket science, huh? You not need at good all. fuel to fuel your brain. So Julia, if you look at your micronutrients as your building blocks, so they're your building blocks to help your body optimally function, which therefore it would be critical for your mental health, your well-being. When you look through your last 13 years of data between taking micronutrient supplements versus shifting your diet, is there a difference on the outcome in terms of how beneficial is it to just change your diet versus taking pills that are a direct hit of the things you need? Great question. And we don't know the answer yet. There are studies that have been done internationally, not in my lab, but we know so much now that we didn't know 10 years ago about the association between diet and mental health. So there are amazing researchers in Australia, in the UK, in Canada, in Japan, in Spain, who have all collectively shown that the more you eat crap food, the more likely you're also going to be depressed or anxious. The more you eat of foods that are either consistent with your traditional diet, whatever that might be, or is a Mediterranean diet, then the lower your risk for mental health issues. So very clearly shown, epidemiological studies that have followed people over time have shown that what I eat at time A is going to influence and predict my mental health at time B. Then there's randomized control trials, which are harder to do with diet because everybody knows they've been put into the diet manipulation group, right? You can't you can't hide McDonald's, right? So <laughs> not that that's what they're doing. They're actually giving them olive oil and, and fish and, and lots of fruit and vegetables and seeing whether or not a change in diet can have a positive effect on your mental health. Those studies show that that can lead some people to go into remission. In fact, about 30% in a study that was done in Australia showed 30% remission in people who had a diet went into a dietary change group versus a social support group only had showed 8% going into remission in their depression. So which is quite major when we know the importance of social connection for mental health. So that's quite a significant difference. Exactly. So that was a small trial. It was called the SMILES trial. And then it was followed up by another trial and then another trial. So there's been now three RCTs, randomized control trials, that have shown that diet manipulation can be helpful at changing your mental health. I think, though, based on what I know about uh, what the micronutrients are doing in our brain and based on what we know about agriculture, I think that there are people who where diet manipulation alone won't be enough. So my mantra is food first change your diet. 
start there. This isn't rocket science. And we know how many people are eating ultra processed food, that that's got to be a good thing. And, and I get stories all the time. Like, and I'm currently running an online course that's running right now, a mass online open access course where we have 8,000 people who are enrolled. And so I'm reading all of the discussion comments Mm. and there are people on there going, I didn't realize how important it was to eat well for my mental health. And they're, you know, they're all engaging in their own kind of diet manipulation experiments with themselves and finding that that's been beneficial. Can I check when you say there's a group of people, you think it won't be enough? Yes. Is that a defined group of people or just? Yeah, we don't know who they are. It will work for some, it won't for others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the moment in my lab, we've tried to identify who they are and it's not as simple as you think it would be, but I'll, I'll explain who they potentially might be. So it would be people like who may, for example, we always, we've heard about genetics. You might have a genetic difference that means you don't you don't make enzymes as you should. And so that leads to sluggish metabolic pathways. That could be a reason why giving a lot more vitamins and minerals than what you can get out of your food can correct that kind of metabolic reaction or Deficiency. chemical pathway. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So you can speed that up. And that's been shown to be the case for physical health. And that's something that we wonder about mental health. There's no reason why it would be operating differently for the brain versus mm. you know other conditions, but that needs to be shown empirically. But that's a thought. And we have a little bit of data that suggests that that could be one of the things that might be going on. So that could be one thing is that you just have genetic differences that mean you need help. Your metabolic pathways need some help with more nutrients. Is there any differences genetically with different ethnicities in this research? No one has ever been able to delve that deeply at this stage. Yeah. Uh, Sample sizes are just not large enough to be able to do that. It was a question that popped into my head as I was prepping for today. It could well be. It could well be, but we haven't looked at been able to look at that one yet. That's one factor. Another factor would be things like your life stage. So whether you are pregnant, (laughs) we know that we need more nutrients during pregnancy. You might be an adolescent. This is the one that's near and dear to my heart because I have teenagers. I like to think about their brain being under reconstruction. And if your brain is under reconstruction, your frontal lobes are developing, then you need your your nutritional needs go up at a time when adolescents are probably not having necessarily the best diet under massive amounts of stress. So for example, the research that we've done, we did after the earthquakes in Christchurch 2010, 2011, showed that additional nutrients made people more resilient to dealing with the aftermath and coping with the trauma of being in those major earthquakes. We then replicated that after a flood in Alberta, Canada. And then more recently, we, we showed again with the victims of the mosque attacks in Christchurch that giving people additional nutrients helped them recover from the trauma associated with the being either in the mosques at the time or having a loved one die during that or severely injured. Julia, what do you think is the mechanical pathway for that? A simple way of thinking about it would be that trauma triggers the fight-flight response. So the fight-flight response is going to always trump everything else because it's about survival. And so all of your, again, the fight flight response needs to operate with nutrients. You have to have nutrients in order to make adrenaline. For example, if you look at all the pathways to making adrenaline, you see there's these cofactors along the way and lo and behold, they are minerals and vitamins. So I think about it as a triage system, which is that the body is going to put all of its resources into the fight flight response and and you'll be lucky if there's anything left over. 
whatever's left over then has to regulate your sleep, regulate your mood, regulate your anxiety, all of those other things that need to happen. So by giving people additional nutrients at a time when probably their nutrient intake has been compromised because they're in a stressful situation, so they tend to eat more comfort foods, sugar, they're drawn to the sugar, which is, I guess, good for the fight flight response potentially, but not good for anything else, especially when we eat it in cookies and cakes and not in its natural form as a fruit. So there's a cluster going on, a cluster uh, going on. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So you have these things compounding each other. And so then giving people additional nutrients in pill form, that's what we've observed clinically. And we've got an enormous amount of data now to show this is that it seems to help with then the regulation of those non-essential functions, the things that aren't, they're not essential for survival, but they are important. You know, it is important in terms of long-term health. So that's what we think. And it certainly fits with what we know biologically, what's going on biochemically. That's sort of my simple way of thinking about it. Sure. So stripping it back, if your body's under more strain, you need more nutrients because it's got further to spread. Absolutely. Further need. Further need. And then if you think about it though, and something that we've observed clinically over and over and over again is that when we do give these nutrients and people do really well, I might get a comment going, they're not doing as well right now. Like if it's a child, for example, and I'll I'll hear, hear from the parent going, oh no, what's happened? It's not working as well. And so then I'll say, is your child sick? And that could be the reason is that When they get sick, the nutrients, I think, just get diverted to helping the body fight the infection or whatever's going on. And then you have less available for regulation of attention. That's the way I think about it. And having heard enough of those anecdotal stories, it seems to make sense. Or that, are they going through a growth spurt? If they're a teenager and then, oh yeah, suddenly, you know, he grew five inches, you know, last week. Well, maybe that's what's happened is that the nutrients got diverted. So, you know, it's a limited supply. And so it goes to where it's needed. Do you think, Julia, given the world we live in now, which a term I use and hear often is we live in a vocal world, it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, it's ambiguous. We have people that just have daily stresses that are high. They're juggling work and home, globalization, separation from family, all the things that kind of can characterize modern life. Do you think, or is there research thought around micronutrients being even more important when you're living in 2021 compared to if you lived in 1920? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I would flip it around and I would say, are we eating foods that are supportive of our modern lifestyle Mm -hmm. that our ancestors didn't eat and they were eating something else? Because I don't think our stressors have gotten worse. I hear that that argument a lot. I think Oh, come on, World War One, you know, the Spanish flu, that's only in the last hundred years. There's a lot of stressors that our ancestors have had to cope with. Mm-hmm. So I struggle with that one, that we are under more stress. But if we are, then then nutrition is even more relevant and making sure, sure that you're eating nutrient-dense food is then even more important than it might have been for our ancestors. But we've had the biggest change in our diet ever. Mm -hmm. in our entire history of being human. How long do you think that's been over? Like when you look at the history of food? I think it's been over at, you know, 100, 150 years. We introduced, you know, grains over a very long period of time into our diet and other things like insects or dairy. or. That's a question that's come up a lot because I asked the public, what do you want to know from Julia? And a lot of people came back with this question around carbohydrates and 
your mental health that pathway and and I suppose I'm going to guess that there's a hierarchy of carbohydrates depending on how processed they are. Got it. But I'm going to ask you the question. Yeah. I mean, that is more of a question that I would say a nutritionist would be able to give you a really good answer on that one in terms of the different types of carbs and complex carbs and simple carbs. But I'll just say it it, in my way of thinking about the nutrition world, which is that the more highly processed it is, a carb is, and you can get really highly processed carbs, then that means they're just getting more and more stripped of their nutrients. The more it's in its original form and not stripped of its nutrients, then that would mean that it's going to be more nutrient dense. And then also the fermentation process, is it quick? Is it slow? Is it, you know, that will influence the nutritional density. Then I would think about the crops, how the crop was grown, because another reason why we may be more nutrient deficient and our brains aren't getting enough of nutrients is because our soils are depleted. We're not remineralizing the soils adequately. We are aiming for crops that grow quickly. And when the crops grow quickly, then they end up meaning that there's not as many of the minerals from the soil that are drawn up into the plant. And that's where the minerals come from. The plant uses the minerals to make vitamins. We can make a few vitamins, our, our microbes can make a few vitamins, but we can't make minerals. So we have to get them out of our plants or animals that eat the plants. So you see that if you're not adequately remineralizing your soil, or you're not doing crop rotation, or you're you're not kind to your soil, or the only things that we put back into there are NPK, nat- nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, then you can see you're going to get a, a soil depleted of nutrients. So Julia, as a lay person, I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm not a clinical psychologist in this moment. I'm absolutely just, I'm a mum of almost two. I'm 30 weeks pregnant. I'm thinking, yeah, I think I eat pretty well. It was interesting. It was a reflection coming up to this podcast where I just had sushi for lunch, which I probably shouldn't admit being pregnant eating sushi. I'll get comments on that. Anyway, I had sushi for lunch and I was thinking that's pretty processed for me. How how bad is that on the processed front? And then I got in a lift and a guy got in the lift with a bag of chips and a Coke. And I thought, okay, <laughs> interesting reflection, Jackie. Anyway, but if I'm thinking, okay, I want to eat food that's better for my mental health. I want to increase my vitamins and minerals in my diet as a lay person how do I practically go about that because I have no bloody idea how my crops were grown when I buy stuff at the supermarket so where do I start and what do I do yeah or whether they've been sprayed with glyphosate because that's another one of the challenges of carbs is that glyphosate there's a lot more research that's coming out that that could be very harmful for us so what's my 101 guide to start your one-on-one guide is that I would simply be shifting, doing that shift from eating foods that are ultra processed. That's your bag of chips. That's your Coca-Cola. That's your really highly processed meats, like your hot dogs and start eating more real fresh food. And so what is that? That's your meat that you get from the butcher. That's your sourdough breads, potentially, if you're looking for eating your better carbs, not the white bread. White bread is ultra, ultra, ultra processed. Your grain, you know, ones that have more contained grain. But, you know, just as an aside, some people have gluten intolerance. And so sometimes people have to avoid carbs completely, but that's, a you know, another topic entirely. But if that's not an issue, then looking to eat more of the complex types of carbs, real food, real whole, you know, the, your fruits and vegetables in season, going to the farmer's market, uh, getting involved in all the amazing urban 
farms that are cropping up everywhere, the gardens that are everywhere. I found them all over Christchurch, mm. so I assume that they're in other cities as well. So get participate in that if you had the time, mm. but otherwise going and finding out what's in season. Although some things like avocados seem to have been in season for the entire year. I don't, I, I'm kind of puzzled about that one, but super cheap and an amazing source of really good nutrients. So, and olive oil, you know, if you're going to choose an oil, I would go with olive oil. Your extra virgin olive oil is a fantastic oil to cook with, to use on your salads. I wouldn't go with any other oil. That's all we use in our house. When would someone then go, I've shifted my regular diet. I'm trying to eat less ultra processed food to actually, no, I want to buy vitamins and minerals in a pill form. and I'm going to start taking that. Yeah. Okay. And so that's when it gets complicated. So first, absolutely switching that if you can, and then learning to cook and don't go to the supermarket hungry. There's a, a lot of tips, a lot of tips in our book about exactly how to do this. And in the MOOC on the online course, which is free, it's a free on edX platform right now. Okay. So nutrients, that's a more complicated question because not all nutrients are made the same. So your supermarket variety of nutrients For the most part, there are exceptions. A multivitamin, a one a day is not going to cut it. And the reason for that is that the dose is way lower than we've ever used in our research studies. And B, they probably don't have the breadth of the nutrients as well, because the minerals in particular, they can be expensive. And so their supermarket variety type of cheap one is going to say it has zinc, but not a lot of zinc in there, or maybe it's not in a bioavailable form. So I would then stick with the research and the nutrients that have been studied in research if you're using them to target mental health issues. And then you have a list of about at most a dozen ones that have actually been used and studied in research. And so that's available again in our book. We've provided all the information on all the supplements that have been studied. It's available in the MOOC and it's available if you contact my lab. So that's how we distribute that information. Mental health nutrition at canterbury.ac.nz. I've developed an email for the public inquiries that we provide all that information. The reason why I, I am always hesitant about going onto a a podcast like this and say, oh yeah, this is what you should take, is that then it looks like I'm selling and I'm not here to sell products. I don't make them and I don't make any money out of them, but I can get accused of that. So I'm just really careful about it and say, here's where you can go find that information. Go and have a look. And then it's the information is provided in the big context of also making sure people don't stop their medication because as we know, stopping medication can be a a huge challenge. You can go into withdrawal. We don't want people to do that. So we provide all the information, including drug nutrient interactions, because when you're taking nutrients at the doses that we've been giving, and just for your listeners, that can be up to 12 pills a day. So four, three times a day. And that's partly because the minerals are so bulky. When you take a calcium pill, super bulky, right? So just think about the number of minerals. There's about 15 minerals. And so you kind of go, oh yeah, if I'm taking an adequate quantity, it's going to end up being a lot of pills. Thank you for raising that because I was going to put that in a disclaimer at the start or end of this podcast that don't just come off your medication and start micronutrients. It's absolutely got to be in partnership with your prescriber. Yeah. And that's happening more and more in New Zealand. The prescribers are kind of being forced by their patients to learn more about this and to learn that that there are going to be interactions. And then it's as soon as you think about the science, it makes perfect sense. You've got nutrients that we know are involved in the chemical pathways to make neurotransmitters, serotonin, for example, or dopamine. Which is your happy drug, everyone. Dopamine, your reward drug. 
And then you know that that if you take an antidepressant, it's a it's an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So it influences serotonin pathways as well. So you're doing a double whammy. Then it starts to make sense that putting the two together could lead to less than optimal outcomes. So that's why there could be nutrient drug interactions. And there are other explanations as well, but that's a fairly usable and friendly explanation that people can get. Yeah. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So we give all that information within the context of providing the research and the nutrients that we've studied. Question, Julia, you said, you know, SES, social economic status doesn't come into this. Oh, I'll have to give a little bit of (laughs) just (laughs) to clarify. I think you mean it's not just those that perhaps are below the poverty line that don't eat well. I think that's what you were talking about before. That's what I'm saying is that when you have a survey where 50% of the daily caloric intake is coming from ultra processed food, you can't just explain that away as being an SES issue. That's what I was meaning. But yes, poverty is a challenge because it's harder than to eat well. Yeah. And that was going to be my question. I'm listening to you going, okay, this is what should be, you know, like these are the types of foods Mm. that should be on the shopping list. If you then need nutrients, you potentially need 15 pills per nutrient per day. And I'm thinking, okay, this all costs money. And I know when I walk into, you know, my supermarket shop on the weekend, which didn't even include dinner because we get whoop because I'm I'm mumming and it's easy and, you know, it enables me to kind of work in mum and food. But it was $300 and it was not processed food. It's for a week for three people. And I I came home and I went, what was in my trolley? Cleaning products? You know, like I really struggled to go, how the heck did that tally that? So when you've got a family that is struggling financially, the bag of chips is cheaper than the non-processed or or the chicken is cheaper than the sausages to use in more relevant. So, so how do people really manage that? I know. Well, I guess I, I'm now at the point where I kind of push back against a little bit of that. Because while I agree that a bag of chips is cheaper than your fruit and vegetables, well, so is a cardboard box in, its, you know, in that it's going to have the same number of star rating as your bag of chips. And it might even have more because it's low in sugar, it's low in calories, <laughs> it's low in salt, um, and it's low in fat. And it has zero nutritional value. <laughs> it's got zero nutritional value. And so I'd say it's, you know, the bag of chips is it really food? And so that's the first thing. The other thing is that I would push back in that we seem to be very happy to pay for the consequences of eating those foods down the road. And that's the cost that it is to our healthcare system in terms of diabetes, the outcome, we know it's clear absolutely clear. The research is showing the outcome of eating those foods is that your health is going to suffer. And then with the public healthcare system, like you have in New Zealand, we will pay for that. And we are very happy to pay for you for people eating poorly. But I suppose the collective is paying for that rather than the individual, aren't they? Exactly. But I think anything can change if there's a will. Jacinda Ardern and the Labour Party changed gun laws within four weeks because there was a will to do that. So we can change our laws so that there is better equity when it comes to getting buying fruits and vegetables. They don't have to be taxed, for example. Are you talking about sugar taxes or taking GST off fruit and veg? Yep, or- absolutely. So that's some of it. But I also think you can eat cheaply well. And that's where, you know, if you're choosing to eat steak and lobster, then that is going to be a lot more expensive than if you decide to make some of the bulk of your protein coming from, say, the legumes, like the beans or your lentils. 
Lentils are really nutrient dense and so cheap. You just have to Google how to make something with lentils. I made a delicious dish that even my kids would eat with lentils last week. So you can do it. You just have to, you know, you might need to put some spices in there to make it a little bit more flavorful, mix it in with some onions and some garlic. And then you end up with a really tasty dish that is nutrient dense and was super cheap. And you cannot argue with me that that is going to be more expensive than eating a bag of chips and Coke. Are there good resources, Julia, for people? Well, I think there are amazing resources now with the internet is that you can just, you know, if you have a few of like kale, cannot argue with me that kale is not easy to grow or that it isn't cheap in certain times of the year, nutrient dense food. So you could just put in kale and lentils into your search and you will get a lot of recipes that are absolutely easy and doable to do at home. So, you know, I think there are ways now with easy access to recipes online that we can learn how to put a few of these really nutrient dense foods together and make a a meal that is going to be really nutritious. So I guess I'm pushing back a little bit on that. And then the other thing is that we know when we eat ultra processed foods, we get hungry really quickly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you might end up going for takeaway and then, you know, you can't, again, a takeaway is is expensive relative to, again, a home-cooked meal. Mm -hmm. So I push back a little bit because I think that's some of the excuses that people use in order to not make any changes. Or it's an excuse of why psychologists don't want to raise it with their clients who might be from a lower SES. And I just think that we need to stop using that as an excuse for not having this conversation. Well, I suppose there might be more barriers, but it doesn't mean there's not solutions. Correct. Yes. So... I think we just have to be thinking, mindful of them and know that there are a lot of choices, a lot more Mm -hmm. choices than people are probably aware of. It would be a good cookbook. (laughs) There are recipes in my book as well, (laughs) cheap recipes using these kinds of ingredients. Julia, the other thing I wanted to ask you, just because a lot of people ask me and I don't really know the answer. So where does the gut come into this? Because you hear about gut microbiome and you hear about serotonin and the gut and the brain. And I'm like, okay, so we know micronutrients are the building blocks for neurotransmitters, for mitochondria, for energy. Where does my intestines fit in this process? Sure. I mean, the foods that you eat are going to be feeding your gut. Just thinking about it in that context is that if I eat a diet that is pretty much ultra processed, then that's what's feeding my bacteria. And the effect that that's had on our bacteria is that we start to lose species. And so the diversity of the bacteria in your gut is compromised by the types of foods that you eat. Likewise, if you eat a lot of foods that are gut friendly and things like your prebiotics and your probiotic types of foods, that's eating your your yogurt, your pickles, your sauerkraut, leeks, onions onions, your garlic, those types of foods that are really things that your your bacteria feed on, then we know that that increases the diversity of the microbiome and that in turn influences the chemical messages that are going between the gut and the brain. So that's hopefully a simple explanation to your gut well. Well, that's the connection I'm interested in. So it is more complicated than that. And that would allow, you know, we'd have to spend a whole hour on that. And it's not my, I've been dabbling in, in the microbiome. We do studies getting fecal samples from people to understand what effect micronutrients have on the microbiome. And so we're learning that even just giving those extra vitamins and minerals seems to have a positive effect on your diversity. And that's associated with symptom reduction. So we wonder whether or not that's also a pathway 
of the benefits that we're observing of the nutrients, but it's such early days. I think though in 10 years, it's going to be such an exciting time around all the interventions that are going to come from this work. We don't know what the ideal microbiome is at this stage. So, you know, telling people you must take this bacteria is probably going to be a too simple a solution. Just like, you know, you wouldn't say just take this one nutrient. It'd be something similar. So, there will be a point where we're going to really recognize how important it is to feed the microbiome. But everything I've said is consistent with that. Sure. It's, it's a confusing world, isn't it? Yeah. Do I take more micronutrients? Should I be taking probiotics? Is it all just yeah. good? It is such a, it's such a new field for all of us to be wrapping our heads around. And it's confusing, I think, for many people. Absolutely. But I think if you just stick with that food first, real food first, you're ticking a lot of boxes just by doing that. So real food, reduce your ultra processed food. That is a great starting point for many, many people. Yeah. From what I can gather from your lab, the pathways you have been looking at are between micronutrients and ADHD, anxiety, depression, maternal well-being, and Alzheimer's. Am I correct in that? We haven't done Alzheimer's. There is research that has been done on cognitive decline, but not in my lab. We've dabbled in sleep, PMS, addiction, there was smoking cessation, behavioral issues in kids. We're getting into a lot more on mood dysregulation in adolescents, in children. We've done a study just finishing on traumatic brain injury. So I think the bottom line is we've touched on many of the conditions that people are struggling with, but I don't think about them categorically really Mm. anymore. I think about it as providing the brain with the nutrients that it needs in order to heal and whether or not that's to heal from poor attention or it's to heal from dysregulated mood or anxiety, then give it the ingredients it needs. Sure. And I think that's probably why I haven't gone down that path in this discussion, because for me, it sounds like from you, Julia, actually, for all of us, whether you're experiencing mental illness or not, whether you're flourishing or languishing at the moment, actually, what's going to help us all from a positive mental health perspective is if we really go, am I providing my body and my brain with the fuel it needs to operate optimally? And if I'm not, what do I need to do? Exactly. Beautifully said. To finish with, what are you most proud of in the work you've done? I think I'm proud that I keep going some days. (laughs) There are days when I wonder why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I'm most proud of the work that we've done out in those really emergency-like situations where we responded to an event to see whether or not we could learn something from it in terms of optimizing people's mental resilience in those really difficult times. I feel most proud of that work because it wasn't easy to do. And what we learned from it is enormous and has implications for everybody in terms of stress. It has implications for us currently in the COVID environment of just having that additional stress on us constantly and the uncertainty is that in fact, we need to make sure we nourish our brains optimally to be more resilient. Are those participants still on the nutrients, Julia, or are they off them? It's hard. You lose track of people. I do hear from people from time to time years later. I mean, some of the kids who have been in the studies of ADHD, I heard from one just the other day, and he's probably been on them for, he's now a teen, you know, in late teens, probably about eight years, maybe. So I do hear from time to time, or somebody might stop me in the street and go, I was on those nutrients. In some cases, though, you don't need to stay on them long term. With this acute stress, don't, we don't think so. We don't think you necessarily have to stay on nutrients long-term. Mm. In some cases with something like ADHD, it seems that most people do need to stay on them long-term because the symptoms come back, but not always. 
So it's always worth giving it a go or changing your diet, you know, by learning that nutrition is relevant to your brain. It often is the impetus to get people to change their diet and really focus on eating more foods that are nutrient dense. And that in itself can mean that you could at least lower your dose. Well, that comes back to what's the body going through and where are the nutrients needed? And if it's a long-term impact, you might need them long-term. If it's short-term stress, maybe you need them short-term. Yeah. I mean, we do like, I do like doing long-term studies. The most that we've done is a couple of years. Your attrition is huge. And so unfortunately, journals and reviewers don't like studies that have huge attrition. So it's usually not worth it, even though you learn a lot anecdotally. It's not that powerful in terms of the science. Well, Julia, thank you for your time. As always, the longer I'm a clinical psychologist, the more I realize that if we can strip it back to basics, it's actually what we need. Whether you're talking about managing people at work, whether you're talking about fueling your body well with the right nutrients to have the best mental health you can, it really is let's come right back to basics and start there. And that is what often people find most helpful. Exactly. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just finished listening to another episode of Mind Brew, the nutrition mental health episode where we delved in and looked at the relationship between our diet and what we choose to eat and how that can impact our mental health and well-being. I, for one, found this podcast particularly insightful. Whilst I can understand at a basic core level that surely our food equals fuel and that we need optimum fuel to run our mind and body, it was so helpful to receive Julia's clarity on the discussion. I think as I mentioned at the end of this podcast too, like always, I really do believe in distilling what can appear complex or confusing topics into very easy to understand concepts. What have I taken away from Julia? Put food in your mouth that is less processed. That doesn't mean you can't eat uh, frozen peas or drink a glass of milk. But what we're trying to avoid is that ultra processed food that when you look at it, really, as Julia said, you could be eating a cardboard box instead. It also helped me understand the scale, I suppose, of what micronutrients involves. 15 pills, you know, a day for one nutrient. And if you're having up to 12 nutrients a day, the level of intake you may be required to have when you are embarking on a micronutrient process. I think also what's so important for me to stress in this topic is that there may be many of you listening that have experienced mental illness uh, in your past or maybe currently experiencing mental illness and on medication. It is extremely important that we never just stop medication without talking with our prescriber and having a plan around that. It's also really important to note, as Julia said, that if micronutrients are impacting our neurotransmitters, the internal drugs inside our body, then of course that will have an impact and a relationship with medication. So again, that pathway forward for you if you are currently on medication needs to be very clearly discussed with your prescriber before you give micronutrients a go. That does absolutely not stop you though from shifting and changing your diet to a less processed diet from today. 
I also do really want to acknowledge those of you that perhaps experience financial hardship because whilst I absolutely understand Julia's thought process around finance being perhaps an excuse to shifting your behaviour or engaging in a better way of eating, I also understand that good food is expensive and I agree with Julia too that you know it would be fantastic if the government removed GST from our from our fruit and veg and, and, and meat and our healthy foods and, and adopted sugar taxes etc. So do your homework, use the library, go on the internet, search cheap healthy food, unprocessed food. You know, get together a support network of people that might all want to do that behavioural shift and change together. Because we know that when you're changing behavioural habits, it's tricky, it's tough. But things like support and planning and research all make the difference in helping you be successful in that shift. If you enjoyed this episode of Mindbrew, please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and have a good day.